Good morning. Welcome to Dialogue Sunday Study. Today with uh, Kylie Nielsen Turley, who will talk about Mormon chapter seven, eight, and nine. Um, I'm Chris Kimball. I'm conducting on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation Board today. Uh, board members Rebecca Deschweinitz and Michael Austin are also present on this Zoom link and will be part of the group today when, when we can participate appropriately. We are using our webinar format on Zoom and we're also live streaming on Facebook. We're recording this program and we'll post the recording this afternoon. For viewers on Zoom, there's a chat function. For viewers on Facebook, there are comments possible. We try to follow both and try to include you uh, when we have time for conversation. Those um, comments and chat are recorded and uh, live for posterity. We ask that you be um, appropriate and uh, courteous. Uh, and, and I guess the world will know if you're not. Um, more than five, 50 years of dialogue content, articles, essays, poetry, and art. And these sessions are available online at dialoguejournal.com. And the journal is also available at JSTOR now. Um, they're posted at YouTube, and the, these sessions are posted at YouTube and available through dialoguejournal.com. Uh, looking to the future, we are we started this Dialogue Sunday study in response to the COVID-19 shutdown. And with the brilliant support of Taylor Petrie, the current Dialogue editor, and an incredible roster of teachers, we've been following the Come Follow Me Book of Mormon readings for 2020. We're programmed this way through December 13th, which will take us to the end of the Book of Mormon lessons for this year. Uh, next week's lesson in particular, on November 15th will be by Ben Shaladi, a, uh, an honor code administrator and adjunct professor at BYU Provo. Um, in the meantime, we're transitioning to what we hope to be a long-term, uh, more uh, lasting programming with, uh, with firesides, monthly firesides in the evenings. Two weeks ago, we heard from Thomas Griffith on the Latter-day Saint approach to politics. And that presentation was recorded and is available like these study sessions uh, online. Next week in that same fireside format, we'll be hearing from Claudia Bushman talking about Resurrection Month. Um, now I'd like to begin with a, uh, introdu to, to introduce first Kylie Nielsen Turley. With an MA in American Studies, Kylie has taught writing and literature courses at UVU and BYU Provo since 1995. She emphasizes a literary approach to the Book of Mormon in her literature of the LDS People course at BYU. Trying to practice what she teaches, she publishes creative nonfiction essays on mothering, illness, and whatever else strikes her as interesting, such as having poor eyesight in her article, Eyes to See in Dialogue in 2017, and another living by the cemetery in Dialogue in 2003. She's the author of the volume on Alma 1 to 29 in the BYU Maxwell Institute's Brief Theological Introduction series. And my wife, Linda, who is also uh, a member of the Dialogue Foundation board, tells me that, uh, and, and tells me to say out loud that Kylie is kind and wise and smart. And that may be the highest recommendation. Hmm. Okay. We will begin today with an opening song, Let Us All Press On. It's hymn number 2243, 
Uh, we'll be using the, the choir at Temple Square, Mormon Tabernacle Choir. I'm not sure what they were called at the time this recording was made. And our opening prayer will be offered by Sylvan. Before the music starts, let me just, Sylvan is a freshman in high school. She enjoys wakeboarding, playing guitar, singing, and reading. She's currently reading N.T. Wright's Surprised by Hope and rereading Brandon Sanderson's Way of Kings series as she prepares for his new book. So we'll begin with music. Let us all press on and an opening prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank thee so much for the opportunity that we have to meet here today online and to learn about thy word. We thank thee so much for the technology and the people who have made this possible. Um, we ask that we can feel the spirit today and learn the things that we need to learn. We're so grateful for thy word, for scriptures and the prophets and for modern revelation. And we say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay, do we just go right into my part then? Yeah. You're on, yes. Okay, here we go. Um, I actually requested that song and that prayer for a reason, and we'll find out about that more in a little while. Um, just as we're starting here today, though, I wanted to mention that I don't lecture. I, I teach very differently than, than standing up and giving an hour lecture. So I've tried to plan for this. I have no idea how much stuff I have, how long it will take or not take. I really hope Rebecca and Christian are ready to be active participants in my little class here. <laughs> and all of you as well in the chat, um, I hope you'll comment and participate because like I said, I'm really not used to teaching in a lecture kind of format. I, my way to prepare typically for a Sunday school lesson is to think of a few good questions and genuine questions that I don't know the answers to and bring them to the class. So I will try my best <laughs> to go ahead and, and speak more than I'm used to. Um, I'm going to have a PowerPoint today. So I'm gonna share the screen and hopefully be able to click back and forth without too much trouble. Um, let me go ahead and share that. Okay, so hopefully you can see the screen, my screen, yes? Good, okay. Yep. So, um, just calling this remnants. And it's kind of a lesson, a little bit on Mormon seven, eight through nine, which are kind of weird chapters. And at first I was really mystified why they, they put these three together. We have Mormon's last words after Cumorah and then Moroni's first words um, in chapter eight and nine. And they're, they're kind of random. Mormon is sad, speaking to us in chapter seven. And then we have Moroni, who's extremely sad, so sad that he seems mad sometimes. And I just spent a number of weeks after they asked me to do this, 
looking at these chapters over and over again and wondering what in the world is going on with these chapters? They don't seem to fit together as a whole. But actually, as I've studied more, I've come up with some reasons why I think they actually do work together um, and why we maybe should even continue to read them as in together. So it's also a lesson kind of unintentionally on how I read scripture though. Uh, we'll talk about these chapters, but you're also going to find out how I study along the way. And that means before we ever get to the chapters, I need to know what's going on in this story. How are we in this setting? Who are the speakers? Who's the audience? Who are we talking to and why? So we're gonna to move to setting first, and I'm sure you know this, but uh, I just wanted to talk through some of these situations because they're playing out here in Mormon 7, 8, and 9. So we have Christ at three days of darkness, and then uh, Christ comes to these people and all the people are converted. I'm always intrigued though that it took a couple of years for some reason. It was not an automatic thing. It, they still had to all choose whether to be part of uh, Christ's kingdom and they still had that choice. They have a very long time of peace as we know in fourth Nephi. And it's always interesting to me that we have so much information about the decline of this civilization and very little information about these 150 years of, of complete peace. In 4th Nephi 120, the first, the, there's a small revolt and this small, this small group of people take upon them the name of Lamanites. And then a few years later, more people start to have problems. Um, there's some pride that creeps in. They start talking about costly apparel again, pearls, fine things. And then eventually they say there is a great division that happens in 4th Nephi 135. There's a big split officially about 200 years after Christ came. And I want to look at this for a minute. So if we can turn to 4th Nephi, I will turn there. 1, 36 through 39, you'll notice in verse 36, and I have a couple of the verses up here, not all of them, but in verse 36, it says, and it came to pass that in this year, there arose a people who were called the Nephites, and they were true believers in Christ. And among them, there were those who were, call, who were called by the Lamanites, Jacobites, Josephites, and, and Zoramites. Therefore, the true believers in Christ and the true worshipers of Christ, among whom there were three, the three disciples who tarried were there. They were called Nephites, Jacobites, Josephites, and Zormites. So we have this breakdown where previously there had been no manner of ites at all. Um, and then maybe, have Rebecca, could you read these other two verses to us, 38 and 39? 
And it came to pass that they who rejected the gospel were called Lamanites and Lemuelites and Ishmaelites, and they did not dwindle in unbelief, but they did willfully rebel against the gospel of Christ. And they did teach their children that they should not believe, even as their fathers from the beginning did dwindle. And it was because of the wickedness and abomination of their fathers, even as it was in the beginning. And they were taught to hate the children of God, even as the Lamanites were taught to hate the children of Nephi from the beginning. Okay, so when I read that, and I read it slowly and carefully, there's some problems. This scripture doesn't make sense really to me. Um, if you just read the main clauses, it works fine. They did not dwindle in unbelief, they did, but they did willfully rebel. They did teach their children that they should not believe it was because of wickedness, and they were taught to hate. That makes sense, except we have this little extra phrasing um, in here in the last half of verse 38. And they did teach their children that they should not believe even as their, even as their fathers from the beginning did dwindle. That doesn't make sense. And this, that semicolon right there says, this should make sense. This should make sense as a sentence standing on its own, but it doesn't work. For example, I think the problem, and if anyone in the chat knows more about grammar than me, they are welcome to figure out exactly what's going on here. Um, it looks to me that we don't know who they is. They did not teach their children. Assuming that's the parents, even as their fathers from the beginning did dwindle. So did they, they did not dwindle in unbelief, but they also did dwindle? Who are we talking about? What does that mean? As I look at it and try to figure out the punctuation and try to understand what was going on here, um, and I did te check textual variants. This is nothing really changes here in the original manuscript or in the printer's manuscript. But it looks to me like this in between, and they did not dwindle, should connect up with even as their fathers from the beginning did dwindle. But we have this intervening clause here that doesn't make a lot of sense. So it's an interruption that may, re reads better to us in English if we put it at the end of the sentence. And they did not dwindle in unbelief, even as their fathers from the beginning did dwindle, but they did willfully rebel against the gospel of Christ. And they did teach their children that they should not believe. That makes more sense to me. And that is a kind of different story than when it's interrupted in the middle so that we can't understand what's going on. So who should care about weird little grammar things? And I see the chats coming in. So if they can help me out with that and know how to fix it, please interrupt me, Christian or Rebecca. But let me tell you who I think should care about little grammar things like that. For one thing, I think that the parents in Doctrine and Covenant 6825 should care about that. Um, do you want to say something? No, I think people are. I, the comment I saw was that this is this is great. So keep going. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> good, good, good. We'll keep going with it then. 
we look in Doctrine and Covenants 68, 25, there's some parents there in the scripture that kind of have, they've always, the scriptures bothered me a little bit. Um, and again, in as much, oh, let me grab it over here. Inasmuch as parents have children in Zion or in any of her stakes, which are organized, that teach them not to understand the doctrine of repentance, faith in Christ, and etc., the sin be upon the head of the parents. So this verse, like I said, it's, it's bothered me. How can I be held responsible for what my children did not understand, whether or not apparently I tried to teach them? But with that rephrasing there in 4th Nephi that clarifies things about parents who teach their children to hate, all of a sudden this verse makes more sense, at least in my interpretation. It's not parents who taught children and the children didn't happen to understand. It's parents who taught the children not to understand, not to know the doctrine of repentance, taught them not to have faith. Of course, that would be a sin. And of course, that sin would be upon the heads of those who did not teach or actively taught not to believe, actively taught hate, which is an extremely distressing state for the world or someplace to be in. To, when we get to the point where parents are teaching hate, um, I worry about that kind of world. I worry about them. I think all of us should care about that verse in 4th Nephi, whether or not we're parents, because it, it has a lot of implications for our day, as well as for the Book of Mormon. What does it mean to be a Lamanite or a Nephite by the end of the Book of Mormon at Cumorah when it was a choice, when it was a choice at this point in time. So if we, if you look back at 4th Nephi, you, we would realize that we had almost 200 years of peace. We talk about marriage, I'm assuming intermarriage because there's no ites. There are no boundaries between them. There's no differences like that. And there's no contention. The love of God dwells in their hearts. And then they break down into groups by choice, by belief. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for our day? And actually, that's a sincere question. Um, if you have comments, you said it takes a minute for the comments to come in. But I really am interested to know how that could reinterpret our point of view on the Book of Mormon if at the end of the Book of Mormon, this, these labels may not mean at all what we think they mean. If being a Lamanite and a Nephite at the end of the Book of Mormon is just a choice of belief, maybe we could liken it to say political parties um, a comment here, David Sandberg mentions that it, at this point in the Book of Mormon, it seems that the Lamanites are the, are, have, have the power in a, in a political sense, have mm -hmm. seem to be elitist in the sense that power and ruling were their rights. 
And that seems to be what Lamanites are. And the Nephites are in effect rebelling by a, being a group of people seeking to take their place, to, to, to acquire power. Yeah, so, so the likening to political parties might not be inappropriate at this, by the end of the Book of Mormon. Kind of having triple interaction here <laughs> through others. I see you reading, so please just interrupt me if someone is sharing something that you would like to share. Um, I just think this is a, a critical question for us to ponder if we're possibly misreading the end of the Book of Mormon, what does it mean to break down into groups to, or to have a theology or a belief that you hold so deeply that you would go as far as this society went to complete annihilation of one of the groups with teaching hate, um, how far would we let that go? There's also an observation that the splintering of true believers into multiple groups kind of challenges the, you know, kind of complicates the narrative a bit, right? Right. And that's one thing I've tried to consider. I don't know, do they, they seem to have kept track of their lineage. And I, we're gonna talk about that a little later as well, that, that Mormon knows he's a descendant of Nephi. So maybe they do keep track for 200 years. I was thinking as I was working on this lesson, how many of us, well, I've been in classes before where they challenge you to sit down and do your family group sheet right there. And multiple people do not know their great grandmother's maiden name, multiple people. And so these people could have absolutely kept track of their lineage through 200 years of peace. To a, to a thousand years, do they know who their fathers were? Which person from Lehi's family were they related to? And what does that mean? If they broke down even further into groups, what does it mean to be a Josephite or a Jacobite or a Lemuelite instead of a Lamanite? I don't know. I don't think we do know. Yeah, there's another comment about... Um, uh, a, a resorting, a remembering, according to ancestral lines, um, mm -hmm. people with a mixed heritage might have, you know, which part of their heritage are they going to choose? But again, I think it comes back to this, there is a choice of how you identify um, in this period. Yeah, yeah, a choice based on belief, based on ideas. So that's Part of the context that I brought with me before I ever get to the study of the chapters themselves. What in the world does it mean to have this label in your background? To have, to have at least some ancestors choose this label and then you choose to continue it. Okay, so let's move forward a little and talk about our speakers. We have Mormon speaking in chapter seven and Moroni in chapter eight and nine. So let's finish a little bit about Mormon. Um, he, let's see, we ended up with the great division in the year 231. And then as we move up the screen, 
by the year 300, everyone is exceedingly wicked. I mean, I guess if we're choosing belief alone, I'm not sure what the categories mean at all by that point in time. In 320, Amaron hides the records and tells Mormon uh, where they're going to be. At this point, Mormon is age 10-ish. Um, in 326, Mormon becomes the leader of the armies. He's age 15, 16-ish. And that is part of the reason why I asked the people to pray who are praying today so that I could have them here and ask them how they think that would feel. So Sylvan and Grant, you're our young joiners with us today. How do you think you'd feel if at age 10, the prophet came to you and said, you know what? You are in charge of the whole history, all the books, everything. Or if at 16, they came and said, our country is falling apart. You're going to be the boss of the whole army of the United States of America or of Canada or of any other place. You're going to be in charge of everything. I'll make Sylvan speak first and see if Grant has anything to add. Um. <laughs> overwhelmed that would be freaky I guess and I mean not to mention that the armies were super wicked you know these were his people but you know they wouldn't listen to him and they didn't really yeah that would just so much responsibility that would be scary thanks I just wouldn't know what to do with myself if I was in charge of both things at once at that young of an age, it would be wild. It would be, it would be. So thank you, Grant, for sharing. Thank you, Sylvan, for sharing. Um, I think it's easier for us to project back and imagine in our minds based on maybe some pictures or artwork, what we think a young Mormon would look like, and he does say he's large in stature, but from the voices of people about that age, and these are pretty wise people. I don't know that um, they would be picked out of the whole civilization, but I would pick them out of the whole civilization. <laughs> um, but that's a pretty amazing age to be involved in things like that. Um, at some point in time, when Mormon is about age 52, 53, he refuses to lead the armies at all. He's just an idle witness. Um, I'm also intrigued in about 379, he agrees to command the armies again, but he is without hope, it says. And I wanna talk about that for a minute because to me, this matters. Theology matters how he thinks about things, how he thinks about prophecy matters. In a lesson I attended, Sunday school lesson I attended last week, uh, everyone kind of got on the, the argument and kept going down the lines of this idea that, well, Mormon knew the prophecies. He knew this was gonna happen. And that, I don't know. 
of course he knew it was going to happen, but did he know it was going to happen to him? Did he know it was going to happen like this? Because it seems to me that he has hope for a very long time. And how does it change things if you believe the prophecy is about you and it is inevitable? Would he have tried? How would his life have been different if he'd said, you know what, I'm the guy they're talking about in First Nephi and it's all going downhill. So why try? How we think about things makes a difference. How we theologize prophecy makes a difference. Eventually, we have the last battle. Everything falls apart. There's only 24 people left. And then Mormon writes Mormon 7. Um, in my opinion, Mormon 7.1 is an extremely sad verse of scripture. Uh, in Mormon 7.1, we have a tiny little word that makes a huge difference. And now behold, I would speak somewhat unto the, <clears throat> excuse me, unto the remnant of this people who are spared, if it so be that God may give unto them my words. He says, if. There's been multiple times throughout this book, not to mention Mormon himself has said, I know, I know that you'll have my words. I know that the remnant of this people should have my words, that the Gentile will have my, Gentiles will have my words, that God will listen to all the holy prophets from the beginning of this book who have prayed and said, please save the records for a purpose. But after Cumorah, after watching the, the complete disintegration of his society, he, he seems to doubt for a second. And imagine for someone who has dedicated his whole life to at least preserving the book, at least preserving a record, he thinks, if, if it so be that you have my words, that would be difficult. And then finally, we have Moroni start to come in as well when his father commands him to write. But note, note that there's a gap of 16 years. When I read how Moroni responds in chapter eight, I sometimes think, oh, he must have written it right then. He is upset, he's angry. <laughs> but there's 16 year gap. And this is how he feels still after 16 years. Kylie, I'm gonna um, pull in a couple of thoughts from our Please. participants um, that I think speak to some of what you're talking about here. Uh, there's a question of what are Mormon's fears um, and, and maybe how do his fears perhaps change over time? Uh, and then um, this thought of uh, when does Mormon switch from soldier to historian that he kind of takes a different approach to thinking about what's what's happening. Um, 
and 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 you know when does he invest time in studying his people's history and prophecies and how does that shift how he's thinking and maybe again what his fears are yeah yeah that's interesting i do think he's shifting back and forth there for a lot of the time and there's a good 10 12 years in the middle when he refuses to lead them in the army and we have, a, I don't know, some of us have this idea of Mormon, you know, engraving on the plates and running out to the battlefield. And I, I don't think so. That doesn't really make sense to me. First of all, there's years and years where he's not actively leading the army at all. And the more I read this book, the more I think, I don't think he could compose it on the fly. Um, flashbacks, flash forwards, you know, all sorts of jumping around in time. It would be really difficult to pick it up, put it down for a year or two while you fight another war, pick it up again. Um, I, I don't know. People are much better authors than me, but that would be a difficult, difficult thing to do. And at least in my opinion. A um, couple more ideas I just want to throw out there for you to consider about Mormon. One is that he names his son Moroni. And he kind of seems to worship Captain Moroni a little bit. Um, he just loves that guy, loves him so much. Maybe to the point where his praise of Captain Moroni seems a little bit over the top. You know, we might not have guessed what you just said about him if we were just reading the story. And you know, the verses that I'm talking about in Alma 48. Um, he says things that. And Moroni was a strong and mighty man, perfect understanding. His heart did swell with thanksgiving for his God, um, a man who was firm in the faith. And if everyone would like Captain Moroni, the very gates of hell would shake. Um, just, just praising him. So we know he named his son after him. And by the way, Moroni's, Captain Moroni's son, is Moranaiha, and we do have a Moranaiha who dies with his 10,000 at Kimura. Mind you, by Kimura, we're guessing Mormon's 75-ish years old. He easily could have a grandson old enough to be in the army and participating if Moroni went through and kept following that tradition of, Dad, you called me Moroni? And I'm going to show you. I'll name my son Moranaiha. I don't know. It's just speculation. But at this point in time, it's possible that Mormon has also just watched his grandson die. Sorry. You know, sweet little grandbabies. And that would not be fun. Not at all. But if we go back to how he describes Captain Moroni, I think I see something here that makes sense to me. Um, how would it be, and this is a question also for Grant and Sylvan, one more question, and that's all you have to do. <laughs> how would it be to be the kid of a dad like Mormon, somebody who was 
leading all the armies at age 16. Everybody thinks your dad is awesome. He can do anything. He's going to save the whole country, save everybody. And you're the kid of someone like him. How would that feel? So I'll let Sylvan answer first again. Um, that would be, I mean, I would love him because he's just a great person, phenomenal hero dad guy, but there would be, I don't know if resentment is the right word, but almost just, you know, you've got all these expectations and, you know, your dad is amazing and he named you after this phenomenal general and I just, you know, there'd be so many expectations. I don't know how I would handle it. Do you have anything to say about that, Grant? Everyone would probably have their expectations high for you. With your dad being such a great person, everyone would expect you to be a great person too. And it could be overwhelming. I think you're right. I think that could be really overwhelming. It might be really, really difficult. And so maybe your dad would write really good praise about the other guy to try to take the light off himself. Maybe, maybe he would say, I'm gonna name you after a really great guy. Let's both look to him. I don't know. Maybe something like that. Because um, when I read over that description of Captain Moroni, I see a pretty good description of Mormon at the end of the Book of Mormon. Um, let me see if I can get back to sharing my screen. Um, one thing that seems important to me about Mormon himself, despite living in this, surrounded by war, surrounded by bloodshed, for really the, the whole of his life, more or less. Grant Hardy points out that Mormon never speaks of war figuratively or makes it a metaphor for Christian living. There is no mention of putting on the armor of God, the good fight of faith or spiritual warfare against temptation which to me is intriguing. For someone who lived in war, you'd think they'd write metaphorically about what they've lived. Other people have certainly used the metaphor and used it often in the scriptures and elsewhere. He does not, ever. And I was gonna say joke, but metaphors aren't jokes. He doesn't use that metaphor. Um, we do, and I'm wondering how that impacts us. We use it in songs quite regularly. Um, let's see. So here's a sampling of some battle imagery that we sing in hymns from Let Us All Press On, which we just sang. In the fight for right, let us wield the sword. We're fighting for a kingdom and the world is our foe. Uh, 
um, behold a royal army. I don't know this hymn as well. <laughs> but I text behind on my screen. Let's see if I can. Yeah. Uh, behold a royal army with banner, sword, and shield is marching forth to conquer on life's great battlefield. Then don't stand idly looking on the fight with sin is real and hope of Israel. Strike for, strike for Zion, down with error, flash the sword above the foe. Every stroke disarms a foeman. Every step we conquering go. I struggle with that. I'm not saying that we shouldn't use metaphors. Metaphors are a very important aspect of language. And I love words and I love language. But Mormon does not. And I'm intrigued by that difference. How does this impact us at all? Do we, does it make a difference to use battle and war imagery when we're talking about sharing the gospel of love and peace and the gospel of Jesus Christ with others? I understand we're fighting sin. <laughs> I understand why that metaphor arrives, but I'm just wondering what the effect of it might be in our lives or in the lives of those. The, the, let's see, the battle, life is the battle. Um, the world is our foe. It's kind of distressing to me to look at these battle imagery. And I don't know if anyone's thinking about that. I see a few comments. Well, I, I can't help myself breaking in on my, on my own comment because I know we use these metaphors and we use them frequently, but they have always spoken to me as not really a metaphor, as a metaphor used to sort of soften or disguise what we're really talking about because um, they come out of um, they come out of Nauvoo and Joseph Smith's martyrdom. They come out of the Crusades. They come out of situations like we're talking about here, where real people are killing real people um, because of a division. Because they are a different religion. Because they are a different political group because they have identified in some way. And I, it's never felt to me like the metaphor usage quite worked. It was like always, there was always a message behind that of, yes, we are at literal war in various circumstances in our life. Thank you. Thanks. It seems to, uh, you know, I think it makes sense that uh, these war metaphors would reinforce this tribalism, this notion of ites and uh, the world divided up into <laughs> these different groups rather than the, the message, the unity that, you know, Mormon hopes for and is despairing that that isn't there anymore. Uh, there, a couple of folks are asking about, does Christ ever use any war battle imagery? Um, how does- there are, there are revelations, say in, in the book of Revelation, 
where so it's other people maybe speaking for Christ yeah. like Christ has a sword coming out of his mouth and imagery like that in fact the uh, I have a couple of quotes coming up here from a, a, a I believe she's I do not know what religion Susan Highland is she's published this in the Catholic Biblical Quarterly talking specifically about some of the imagery in the book of Revelation. She says, what seems dangerous about violent metaphor is how it may shape and constrain the imagination. In employing these metaphors, John invites the reader to imagine the world in a particular way. He asks the reader to envision spiritual advancement as a battlefield and then to reason in these terms. According to the logic of the battlefield, conquering is something one does over one's enemies. There must be winners and losers. Winning involves the subjugation or annihilation of the enemy, which can be distressing. If I mean, if we're talking about sin, okay, but sometimes we use this fight the battle imagery about missionary work. Where, where does this lead us? Um, and maybe nowhere. I, I think the rest of, you know, a little more of what Susan Highland has to say is if conquering is problematic morally, it is not because it implies any literal violence or incites the reader to carry out such violence. That's not what we're suggesting. I think people understand this is metaphor. But she thinks it's problematic because it may motivate and constrain the imagination to see even God's accounting of justice, maybe mercy too as a zero sum game, which is distressing. We, once you start the metaphor, we tend to continue it. So if I'm saying, uh, you know, wow, they shot your presentation full of holes. And then, you know, you might respond to me, I know I'm gonna have to go back at them or something and have to patch it up in the hospital and get back out there. We tend to continue the metaphor. And what does that do as we start to think about God, about Christ and his work of love in our lives? Introduce a comment here that the metaphor works better when we are in the right defending ourselves and we are in the march for revenge as happened during Mormon's life. Um, and just leave that. Um, well, yeah, yeah. yeah. Although I think yeah. what you're suggesting is that it doesn't fit, right? <laughs> uh, that it leads to, to problems and it leads to, you know, not loving our neighbor, uh, creating greater division, um, not seeing all of humanity as part of, um, God's children. Yes. And that's There's a couple other really great, um, you know, observations mm -hmm. where, um, someone's noticed that there's a parallel here to your discovery of the disappearance of fire and brimstone metaphors after Ammonihah. So there's, uh, so that kind of fits with, um, you know, what Mormon's willing to say in the ways that he describes, um, yes. The gospel and what's happening right uh, and then just the having seen the fire right he's in he's in the middle of 
just this war and destruction and seeing, you know, his children and grandchildren caught up in it. And he doesn't want to talk about uh, this kind of atrocity. Um, it's not going to be, he doesn't want spiritual life to be warfare, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think part of the, part of the battle imagery that it incites is that we, we were sure we were right anyway, right? But now we're really sure we're right because this is a battle and we're fighting those people and they're wrong. Yeah, I, I have this really disturbing conversation keep coming to mind and it's tied to your including young people in this lesson. Um, a friend of mine talking about war, um, this is back Vietnam era, but uh, told me that there is a reason that the draft was happening at age 16, 17, 18. And that was that um, young men in particular at that age could be trained to kill. And that if it were much older than that, the, the army had found that it was very difficult to convince people to, to go into battle and, and actually kill. Uh, and I, the, the connections here are just very disturbing. I have to say, I, I should have noticed that before and I didn't notice it until I was putting this PowerPoint together and listing out the songs that, that the vast majority of them are explicitly youth oriented. And it's, it, it did disturb me. I was fairly upset. I don't know that it would play out the same way. And, and you put it with the melody and we're just so ready to go. Music is powerful. The metaphor is powerful and putting them together. It worries me. So we have a, some uh, uh, attendees who are noticing, um, you know, Matthew, there are some references that have kind of this war imagery. Matthew mm -hmm. 10, 34 is an example. I bring, I come not to bring peace, but the sword. But also noticing that, that Christ is using the sword metaphor, but is promising to leave his peace with us. Do you have any thoughts about what's different about the way the savior might uh, on occasion employ some of this imagery, but, uh, but it not result in the kind of zero sum game <laughs> that, that, that we usually associate with this, uh, this imagery. Um, my thoughts are that Christ and, and God speak to us according to our own understanding, according to our language. And sometimes maybe that's what we understand, but I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm interested to hear what other people think. I, I know that, that metaphors are used. I do appreciate the mix of metaphors. Maybe there's it's not Christ is a lamb or Christ comes with a sword. Somehow we're, we're supposed to hold both of those and the tension between those in our hearts and minds at the same time or choose one or the other. I don't know. I don't know 
how that's supposed to work. Um, but I, I think we should think about it. I think it will make a difference in how we think about God, how we think about who we are and how we think about our relationship to God. If we continue to dwell on battle fighting imagery, metaphors of war. There's a, I think a useful comment here in this context mm -hmm. that uh, often sword is used in scripture to talk about division, um, dividing asunder. Um, yeah. On the other hand, there's also the comment that we that the real world includes battles and wars and people dying and um, death and there this is in some ways these metaphors and scriptures are um, referring to the world as we find it that we have we have to deal with we have to live in that is true and that is why I think the Book of Mormon is compelling more than, say, a Western movie where people get shot and never even see blood and you probably jump up and keep on fighting. Um, it doesn't play out like that here. Um, we talked about Mormon being so sad, I think, that he, after Kimura, he might question if his whole life work was worth anything. But we also have Moroni. And I wrote these first few verses out almost as poetry because it just strikes me that the emotion behind them seems poetic. Uh, in Mormon 8, he seems very upset, devastated. And he tells us, and my father was killed. And I even remain alone to write the sad tale of the destruction of my people. But behold, they are gone and I fulfill the commandment of my father. And whether they will slay me, I know not. And whether I go, it mattereth not. My father has made this record and he has written the intent. And behold, I would write it also if I had room upon the plates, but I have not. And or I have none, for I am alone. My father hath been slain in battle and all my kinsfolk, and I have not friends nor whither to go. And how long the Lord will suffer that I may live, I know not. I don't know how anyone else reads this, but this is so sad to me. We do see the impact of war on someone. You don't just jump up and keep fighting. It's not a video game that reloads your life again, or you just start again on a new level or whatever happens. I don't know. This is, this man is having a hard time and he continues to have a hard time. He just seems like you read along and all of a sudden it just bursts out of him again. My father's gone because his father was the hero, remember? His father was the champion since he was 10 years old, since his dad was 10 years old. His whole life, he's had this hero of a man leading out in front of him, and now he's gone, and everyone else is gone too. Um, I am 
running this like I run my class and running out of time quickly. <laughs> Let me skip ahead to a few more ideas. Um, he, he says explicitly that he is um, following, fulfilling the word of his father, fulfilling the commandment of his father. And most people take that to mean that he's supposed to include the book of Ether, which I'm sure is part of it. But as I was reading through this chap these chapters, one thing that struck me is how upset Moroni is in chapter eight, and just this, these outbursts and upset, uh, even anger that he's displaying. He calls the people, oh, wicked and perverse and stiff-necked people. And then he says in verse 38 of chapter eight, oh, you pollutions, you hypocrites, you teachers. That was distressing. We could certainly think about that for a while. Pollutions, hypocrites, and teachers. Um, those of us who teach, uh, I was taken aback at that. And then the beginning of chapter nine says, and now I speak also concerning those who do not believe in Christ. Oh, chapter eight was for those who do believe in Christ. The pollutions, the hypocrites, the teachers, the wicked, the perverse, the stiff-necked people are those who believe in Christ. So that sent me on a big hunt that I don't really have time to describe for all of you. But I believe that there's good reasons um, to think that these three chapters are written for the three main audiences of the Book of Mormon. Mormon explicitly addresses chapter seven to the remnant, to the people who are left here. I think Moroni is still a little too upset to get the, this is kind of first draft attempt, but chapter eight seems to be written to the Gentiles. And trust me, he is not happy with us. Those of us who consider ourselves Gentiles as we read this book. Um, chapter nine seems to be written to the Jews for some really interesting reasons. So we don't have time to talk about, I'm so sorry. But what that did is sent me back on a hunt to say, again, who comprised these groups? Who are we talking about here? And maybe we'll just end with flipping back. There are so many allusions in these chapters that send us back to Nephi and Lehi's vision of the tree of life. They, Mormon and Moroni are well aware that this is now at the end of it, they know they're playing out this vision. And I think it's important to see a couple things that I'm not even sure Nephi saw in his vision that he might not have noticed. In Nephi's vision in 1 Nephi 13, 35, um, the angel quotes the lamb as saying, um, which I shall minister unto them, which shall be, uh, that they're going to write, which I, that which I shall minister unto them, which shall be plain and precious. And after thy seed shall be destroyed and dwindle in unbelief. 
Okay, so if that's another one of those verses, I'm like, that doesn't make sense. After they're destroyed and dwindle in unbelief, and the other way around, that works. After they dwindle in unbelief and then they're destroyed, right, Nephi? But that's not what it says. They're going to be destroyed and dwindle in unbelief, which sent me back to a verse I know I've read before, but I don't know that I've seen before in 1 Nephi 13.30. Um, talking about the land and the Lehite covenant, uh, which is the land the Lord God hath covenanted with thy father that his seed should have for the land of their inheritance. Wherefore, thou seest that the Lord God will not suffer that the Gentiles will utterly destroy the mixture of thy seed, which are among thy brethren. I think by the end of the Book of Mormon, we have a mixture. Nephi might not have seen that. He might not understand that. Mormon does. I think there's a reason. He does say he's a descendant of Nephi, but he also tells us that he is a pure descendant of Lehi because he understands that everyone is brothers and sisters in this book. And that we, if we do our part, will be part of the Lehite covenant as well. There's so much more that we could say. We didn't even get to the verses and the chapters themselves. We spent so much time just getting the context so that we could get to there. But I think at the end of this, let me tell you, there's some things that matter. It matters how we think about these groups and how we choose to divide and segregate, no matter if we think we're right. By belief, I'm sure they thought they were right to believe in Christ. I think that's right too. But it didn't lead to a good place when they drew hard boundaries and stayed divided like that. I think it matters how we think about these things, the philosophies that we're telling ourselves in our heads that prophecy just happens, that things are inevitable, that I'm right and you're wrong. Those things matter. And as you can tell, I think words matter. I think metaphor matters. And I think the words of this book matter. They matter to me. They have brought me closer to Christ than any other book I've ever read. I've read quite a few books. Um, but these words bring me to Christ, maybe not always in the way that I thought they were going to, but they do. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I, I'm inclined to have a conversation, but I'd also like to move to uh, uh, closing hymn and prayer. And maybe we do that in that order, go to the music and prayer. We will, we will and partly because of the, the song that you have chosen, Where Can I Turn for Peace? 
which is hymn number 129. And I want to hear it. So I guess let's go there. And our closing prayer will be given by Grant, whom we have heard from. Um, just added introduction, Grant's favorite subject is science. He likes to ski and play ultimate Frisbee. And he just got his braces this week and is not enjoying them at all. Um, let's, uh, let's go to music and a closing prayer. And then if we have opportunity, we can, we can discuss a little beyond that. Our dear Heavenly Father, thank thee for the opportunity for us to meet together. And please help that everyone will be guided in their personal scripture study and that they can understand their own personal revelations. And please help that everyone can take away a message from this meeting. And in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Grant, thank you. In fact, your um, line about understanding your own revelation picks up a point I was so appreciative of, and 